I will tell you that we will predominantly be in James chapter 1 today. If you want to find that in your digital Bible or a blue Bible, I think the page is like 854. I tried to look at that earlier. James chapter 1 is where we'll end up be. We are in the midst of a series we started last week called Human. And I set this up in response to um, some popular critique of the Christian faith, especially from more of an evolutionary scientific perspective. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari wrote a couple books about this. And, and again, as we're going through this, if you're looking for a good read to start your year, these books are very fascinating because he does an excellent job of constructing, if you were to critique a world in which a God did not exist, he tries to set up what that would actually look like. So when you try to um, do something from this, like from my perspective, trying to enter a situation where we're teaching through these things as a concept, it can become difficult. And one of the reasons is, is that we make assumptions about where we are within our, uh, our worldview, our thought, and what we have before we enter into such a discussion. And really, even more so maybe than I've ever done this last week, is I went back, I listened to what I preached, I wrote, or, you know, looked at what I wrote, I looked at some of your blank expressions from time to time to try to figure out how we can, you know, how I can make this more robust. And I think one of the starting points of the many things that we have to say in these types of conversations, and and even parenthetically here, this is why it's so difficult when you're talking with your non-Christian friends about these deeper aspects of faith, is that it's just such a robust conversation. You're not going to get it done in five minutes. You probably won't get it done in five years because of all the baggage we bring to it. And I would say collectively in this group, as much as I know you all, I think one of the baggage, uh, pieces of baggage that we bring to it is that we're very much used to more of an evangelical, fundamentalist way of viewing the world. And therefore, when you see a religious leader before you telling you and decrying you like the false thinking of a scientific evolutionary perspective, you're like, this is more of the same. And I think my thought is that we're a little bit more, um, more, we're farther along that we can have this conversation. But I think I need to, you know, just pause to really go back and put a mirror before us to realize how I perceive you. And again, this this might not be incredibly accurate, but I, I, I really believe in my 12, almost 13 years of being a shepherd of this congregation, it's what I see. And we as a, a church are theologically conservative, which, you know, and some people have baggage with just basic terms, so stick with me when I say conservative. When, when I think of us as theologically conservative, that we actually believe the Bible, and we believe the Bible is true, and within the breadth of it, because there are metaphors within the Bible, there's poetry, there is not literature that is, you know, what we always want to say, it, 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 the, when we talk about is this truth or metaphor and such, just at the end of the, the day, we as a church believe that in the validity of what the scriptures teach us, that a person named Jesus Christ actually existed, that he was the son of God, that he died and rose again literally, not in just some sort of cosmic metaphorical way. So I say that for us to really recognize that we are a theologically conservative church, but at the same time, many of you, and I would probably say the majority, majority are more socially and politically progressive within your leaning. And that's fine. 
Like we've never made uh, political affiliation uh, one, one of the basic uh, entry points within our church because that's what I actually prefer. This is the, the conversations that I want us to be able to have. So it doesn't matter how irate or proud you get of the president at varying levels. There's a space for you here. But understand that the tension between us being theologically conservative and generally politically and socially progressive is incredibly unique. Really, echo is an enigma in that way. Because the conversations that we're able to have, we aren't able to have in other places. There's no way in Hades that I would go to a suburban evangelical church and preach what I did last week because they would have misheard everything about it. It would have been like, yes, science is of the devil and we need to burn Bunsen burners if that's possible for us to be able to make a statement of how wrong this is. But recognize that what we're trying to create here is a safe place for us to explore faith. One more thing about this that I think is important from a shepherding perspective. My role and call as being one of the elders here at the church is to recognize that as we look at the views of our church then, if our, our views, our worldview tends to be more progressive, then we need to always live in tension and find balance in what we believe. So whenever we hear of some news report or something comes out, if it creates this visceral anger at some time, before, you know, and it could be righteous anger, I'll grant you. But what we need to stop and just say, am I actually looking at this from a balanced perspective? So my role within our congregation, with us being a more progressive uh, and I dare say liberal-minded congregation is always to try to pull us somewhere back in the center because that's how we learn, right? We learn in the tension. So maybe this is painful for you just because I don't believe that crap or you, he said something out of place. Listen, I, I, I try to pain over even every thought and concept that we talk about here for this purpose so that we can be changed and become the people that God needs us to be. Final thing, and I think I said a final thing is introduction, but really one more final thing before we even get into this. So you're like, this is the longest flipping sermon that hasn't even started yet, but I think it's important, is that even within these two uh, qualifiers, or, or these two labels that we placed last week, um, the idea that there's on the pole, there's the evolutionist and the evangelical, even within these terms, some of us uh, can have an emotional reaction. Because one of the things is that you, you can believe in some aspects of evolution and still be a profound follower of God. It, what we're trying to say then is that, you know, there is a space within our faith in the scientific community, but recognize that it's difficult for them sometimes to permit us to have the freedom to believe that there's a God that made all of this. So while we will have farther tolerance toward them than they do us, that's fine. We just need to put some sort of construct. The same thing with evangelical, which is a term that even though I've been in the evangelical realm for decades, I don't even know exactly what it means. But what I would say is that it's a better term than like fundamentalist, just somebody who is just very passionate about their faith, but they might not be as thoughtful about it. They might not actually use the minds that God has gifted us to explore the depths of it. So all of that is to say, as we continue this conversation, my, my goal isn't just to piss us off. It's for us to be able to feel tension so that from that we can think more, we can grow, and we can see what God's calling us to do. Is that a good, like, asterisk to it or not at all? All right, you're like, man, that wasn't even the real sermon. We don't have, now, now I can start. I can start with it. But let me, let me switch gears here, and maybe this start will, will, will um, help. And then really, I didn't know how I wanted to start this thing, and then yesterday it 
actually came to me. And it didn't just come to me, it came to some islands in the Pacific that are connected to all of us because they are part of these United States of America. I don't know if you all heard the story that emerged from yesterday, but it was absolutely fascinating. In the state of Hawaii, at 8 o'clock yesterday morning, an alarm went off, like the, the public announcement that goes off on TVs, and now because of most of our cell phone providers, it came through their phones as well with the following message. And the message was, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Understand, all caps number one. So, by the way, if the world is ever going to end, it will end in all caps. But more importantly, not only did this alert just show up on your phone, it showed up on everybody's phones, and then sirens were going off, and it also showed up on the television in red, like, seek shelter now. And these islands then, our fellow countrymen, even though in the middle of the Pacific, were faced with the reality that a nuclear warhead was heading their way, and that the world would end for them, and that likely they would die. It's just absolutely fascinating. So I'm telling you just preemptively, somewhere in the years to come, there's either going to be massive documentaries of this or some sort of movie recreation, whether it be serious or comedy of that, because isn't that totally what James Franco would do? Regardless, looking at how this is, you have to think. Think about it. If you got this on your text, how would you react? The craziest thing I showed Kelly last night is that there was a, a Vine video of a dad sending his kids down into like a storm drain area in concrete so that if the nuclear bomb hit, they would survive. And it just absolutely insane how people, I, I love that I was reading online trying to find out just many responses and there's a bunch of people who are like, I, I slept through it. Like, could you imagine sleeping through that? That there were people at like soccer fields and stuff and games that they were running and screaming in terror. That, that you know, they were closing stores. So like, I guess the encouraging thing about humanity is that widespread looting did not happen until, and this is what's crazy, 40 minutes. It took 40 minutes for them to say that was an accident. And by the way, this is a Hawaii thing. Apparently somebody pushed the wrong button, and this is what we get. Just the last thing that I found, because the data that comes out, and we're going to get some great, crazy, like, I'm sure today it's going to start to emerge, or by the end of the weekend, some of the great hidden video camera. But this is the, my favorite thing, is that somebody was just like, by the way, this is what my Apple Watch did during the time. And you can see the peak in what happened. I just thought this was an interesting conversation because if you were in that situation, if our phones went off collectively, what would we do? Could you imagine if it happened right now? Like, probably we'd be like, I guess we should pray. Like, what is that? You know, is that the good thing? Or is it just like, who's got the biggest basement nearest by? Like, Steve, how, how well is your basement? I'm just telling you, with, as cold as it's getting right now, it leaks. So we're all getting like the nuclear winter if that would happen. How would you react? If you knew that was it. And friends, I'm going to tell you is that the introduction to this of what we have to understand is that this sets up a conversation for belief. Belief. What we feel. And that's the second aspect of us trying to look at a, at a universe. If God did not create it, then why do we even have faith and belief? This is what Yuval Noah Harari says in Sapiens about this because what he says is basically our beliefs is how we would react during a time of crisis like this. How would we deal with it? Instead of maybe doing the logical thing, which is trying to find some place of safety, we would sit here and maybe embrace what is to come because we believe in the, li believe in the life thereafter. Harari writes that nothing exists outside the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe. 
No nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. So as we look at the idea, if there is a universe that exists, then it was all an incredibly happenstance. If no God exists, then religion then, specifically Christianity, our faith, is a contrived story. That the book that we have before us, that the scriptures are really just a collection of ideas and thoughts that some humans created in order to try to make sense of the world. But this is something that's fascinating that Harari does within his construct of such a world in which there is no God. I find it to be consistent and brilliant because notice that he just says there's no gods in the universe, but there are also no nations because basically nations are stories that we tell ourselves in order to keep things in control. No money. Why does money create? It's basically to make trade easy so that we don't have to bring like, you know, like goats to, to buy a car, right? Like we have money that is exchanged, which is supposed to be some imaginary construct that allows us to be able to function. No laws and justice. Human rights. Why do these things exist? Because they're supposed to be a social contract between us humans to say, this is how we're all going to collectively act. I would offer, though, that the umbrella of all, the, all of those things are under God because really we can see through a, a philosophical philosophical view of believing in the higher power, which is why human rights, even money, laws all exist because we see ourselves as, as a created being high above all, all others. And that's what's interesting about this conversation when we look at what we believe. Give me another Harari quote right here from his book Sapiens, that a religion to be successful must espouse a universal superhuman order that is true always and everywhere. It also must insist on spreading this belief to everyone. And here's the key here. In other words, the religion must be universal and missionary to be successful. So it must have the ability so that everybody can believe it, number one. And number two, then it must be evangelistic in nature, that you need other people to believe it. Now what's fascinating is as you study world history, specifically, you know, go back to the ancient Near East, you understand that Christianity was the first religion that actually fulfilled these two things. And I don't think that Harari plays enough homage to that within the conversation, is that Christianity was incredibly unique. And by the way, it emerged from Judaism, right? Judaism wasn't even like this. There was the idea of conversion within Judaism, but nothing like being evangelical because religion was localized. You believed what the people in your areas believed. And we even saw that within the developmental years, the transition from the Greco-Roman go Greco gods to the Roman gods, the idea that they were the same gods and they would throw different names and there would be different narratives and stories. But understanding the idea that Christianity was this faith that checked off all the boxes. That it was a compelling story. And it's one of the reasons we have to admit this as followers of Jesus. Is that the story of faith, Christianity, specifically Jesus Christ, is one of the ama most amazing stories that's ever been told. And we could get into a whole conversation on Joseph Campbell and his thoughts on the creation of, uh, of these types of narratives and stories. But understand that the story of Jesus, this idea that this, this humble leader did nothing wrong and laid down his life for all and then rose from the dead. That's, it's an amazing, compelling story that has translated among every culture in the world. That our belief is also universal. 
This is one of the things that I like that makes us bigger. It's not like even though our, our religion, our Christianity is steeped in Americanism, understand that it's not dependent upon that. And that today, just like we're sitting in this building, there's been people all over the globe who have come together to worship the same God, the same Jesus that you and I do today. And then finally, that it ought to be missionary. It should be evangelical, that we should go and tell other people about that. That this is good news, the gospel, that needs to be spread. So the frustration, though, within people like Harari in doing this, is they say, you know what was like this? All these other pagan ideas, too. We're just like this, and yet we grew past them. Like, you know, as much as there are churches on every corner of America right now, there's not many temples of Zeus that exist, right? And what the scientist does is find incredulity on that idea, the idea that why have we been able to emerge past that pantheon of gods but not past Christianity? So a few things of critique and, and I want to also establish this idea of what our faith, our belief is about. And the first thing that we need to discuss when we talk about this is authority. Because that's one of the massive critiques of Christianity. The idea that it is a top-down religion, that it's one of the powerful. Harari reveals as much when he writes in Sapiens. He writes, how did the Sapiens create cities comprising of tens of thousands of inhabitants? And empires ruling hundreds of millions. The secret was probably the appearance of fiction. Large numbers of strangers can cooperate successfully by believing in common myths. And this is this prevalent view of the evolutionist critique on Christianity. It's just this idea that, look, it's a made-up story that all these people have done. And the reason that has persevered is there's always been a construct of power that has made it so. Unfortunately for us, there's things in our past that kind of enforce what he's saying. Because if you remember, as you read the New Testament, the New Testament, the recipients of that were predominantly the impoverished people of the Mediterranean. Yes, we know through reading the scriptures there were some wealthy people and they were continually encouraged to use their resources for their betterment. But predominantly, Christianity in its first few centuries was the faith of the poor and the downtrodden, the powerless. Until the fourth century when Constantine, and I was going to drop a Keanu Reeves picture in here because I was like, I do need some levity, but I didn't. So I talked about it, which is the same thing. Constantine, when he takes over the empire, somehow converts to Christianity and in doing so brings an organization, community, uh, including different councils like the Council of Nicaea, which brought all of these different folk together to be able to somehow consolidate Christianity. And this is what the skeptic says, is, aha, Christianity was just this thought, this idea, this narrative, this myth, this story that was taken by the powerful and now everything that we have today traces back to the 4th century in this guy. But I would tell you is as much as that's true and as much as authority has been used in the church to do amazingly corruptive things, one of the things that Harari brings up is like, you know, people want to cite as Christians the persecution that happened in those first 300 years before Constantine came in. And he's like, but still the subtotal, uh, the sum total of all those persecutions paled in comparison to all the people Christians killed on behalf of their God. He says it's just, it's just a horrible contract that should have died. But under understand that in this conversation, friends, the core of our Christianity, even when it can be co-opted, it is not this. As much as we want to believe that, okay, this is a very authoritative, hierarchical way of viewing the world, friends, it's not what the scriptures speak to. 
Again, Harari's issue is that we take such things and we try to work them to manipulate other people. Meaning and authority always go hand in hand. Whoever determines the meaning of our actions, whether they're good or evil, right or wrong, beautiful or ugly, also gains the authority to tell people what to think and how to behave. And yes, there's an authority within faith. There's authority within belief. There's authority within Christianity. But what we are trying to project here that's true biblical faith is that it doesn't exist just to control the masses. And I guess that placement of just there could be happened. It doesn't exist to control the masses. That's not why we believe. But when you're looking at it from the outside, you want to do so. So this is why, friends, when you're talking to people who might be skeptical of your faith, I'd never start in the Bible. I'm a huge Bible guy, but I don't want to start there because what that's showing them then is, is even a glimpse of, oh, you're, here's this book and you're trying to say that this book is the most powerful thing. No, I would offer is just that the way that we view the world is the more powerful thing here. And you need to understand, is this world just completely chaotic? Are we the result of some happenstance origins billions of years ago that we're just this speck just floating around on this little rock that happened to have the right atmosphere where we could live? Or was there purpose, design, and meaning? Did somebody make all this? How we start? And that's why we talked last week. We start with origins. And then we go to that next conversation we had last week. We go from origins to humanity. So if there's a creator that made all things, are we special? Is your life more significant than that of a dog or an elephant? Or, or, or are you equal? I go to that conversation. Because as we look through, again, human beings are different than any other creation on the face of the earth. It's after we go through those conversations where people will then grant this idea that, okay, you know, there's this chance that I, I, I and you'll find this statistically, as most people believe that, that this is just not an accident. There's no usually fully fully embraced evolutionists that people do believe, okay, there's something here. They're just leery when we have this conversation of then what? What is that belief system? What is that construct? And I'd offer that the reason is is because they've seen religion, faith, belief at its worst. So our call is to show it at its best. So now finally I get to the Bible. He says in James chapter 1, by the way, I love these words because you know the author of the book of James was the brother of Jesus. Now the way that we believe scripturally is that it wasn't his brother brother, like this was Joseph and Mary's son, whereas Jesus was immaculately conceived through the Holy Spirit, right? But still, this is why I love the idea, is that James grew up in the same house as Jesus, right? He grew up with the person on whom all of our belief is based. If anybody was going to call BS on anything that happened there, and you know it with your siblings, it would, it would have been James, right? But we have James at this point where he's just saying, no, by the way, my brother was not normal. He was God incarnate. He was the savior of the world. So that's why I find this compelling writing for somebody to have been that close and to still hold that all of this is true for me is a compelling argument. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, he writes, don't merely listen to the word, which is the, uh, the, a synonym for the scriptures. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. By the way, bringing in that previous conversation about power and authority, James here is very interesting. He's writing to church communities, but he's also highly critiquing the wealthy in Christian communities who are saying, don't use your wealth as authority. He brings up this metaphor as a mirror. Back in Jesus' time in the first century, the only people who could afford mirrors would be the very, very wealthy. So basically, he's just saying, look, you might have everything taken care of, rich folk, but make sure that you are living a life that is robust and based on the word, not on you just thinking you're doing this. And that's what the challenge is within faith, is that what James is saying is like, look, control here. Doing exactly what the scripture said is is something that benefits who we are as human beings. The issue of skeptics generally toward Christianity specifically is that they've seen it go wrong so many times. True? And let's be really honest in this Me Too era is that it's often been done so by the hands of ignorant men who have used that as another layer of power. So I get it, right? I get the critique of it, but just because people haven't lived on it, lived up to that doesn't nullify it altogether. And again, for those of us who maybe struggled, just this week there was another ridiculous thing that got even published in the New York Times about a, a church abuse case in an evangelical church where, like, you know, they, it was very much just not standing up for the woman in the situation. But James comes back to this, by the way, later. And this isn't even the sermon, but this is a thing just to remind you. Friends, those who want to be teachers will be judged more strictly than regular people. That's always why when I stand up here, I take this very seriously. It's the most important thing that I do, not just as a leader, but for my own salvation. And for those in leadership, whether they be women or men, as they stand within that, they need to act right. And I would offer you that part of the main critique is how this has been abused generations over generations and generations. But the temptation then for many is to say, it's all BS. I need to get rid of all of it. It's all about authority. But friends, what James is saying, it's not about that. If you really understand the word, you're going to just live in obedience to it. Live under authority. And what's funny is that in my life, I live under authority in every other way. But so many people just want to resist that with this idea of faith because they see it as lesser. I get it. Let's continue through the conversation to see another aspect that's very closely related to this. And it's this idea of freedom. This is a very interesting aspect of the conversation, too, because a lot of people critique faith, and specifically Christianity, because they say it's a sacrifice of your freedom. Harari actually disagrees with them. That's why I'm telling you that I appreciate he's a profound thinker as he looks at this. And I'm going to say is that this perspective is very true. Today, religion is often considered a source of discrimination, disagreement, and disunion, right? That... Religion divides us. Yet, in fact, religion has been the third great unifier of humankind alongside money and empires. Religion assert that our laws are not the result of human caprice, I love this word, but are ordained by an absolute and supreme authority. This helps place at least some of the fundamental laws uh, beyond challenge, thereby ensuring social stability. So what he's saying is that everybody says that, you know, 
religions then, what, what they're supposed to do is, you know, limit freedom. No, actually what it does is it unifies people. It joins them together, and in doing so, they find it to actually, you know, even though it, it's controlling, it controls to something else. There's this prevailing message that, for, for, that we hear in critique, is, is that following God enslaves us. But friends, even the evolutionist right now believes that freedom itself is a facade. And this is what Harvey, Harari is really getting to. Another quote from his book, Sapiens. The last nail in freedom's coffin is provided by the theory of evolution. So what he's saying is that really freedom is fake and evolution justifies that. Just as evolution cannot be squared with eternal souls, neither can it swallow the idea of free will. For if humans are free, how could natural selection have shaped them if an animal freely chooses what to eat and with whom to mate, the natural selection has nothing to work with. We mentioned this last week, but I, again, love the consistency that he used. And I think this is something that we as the people of faith really need to grapple with. From an evolutionary perspective, then you and I do not make decisions. Our decision-making prowess is just the response of certain chemicals within our heads that are telling us to make choices. I would love to be the evolutionist in love and to weave that into my marriage proposal, right? Like, look, honey, just like, you know, the, the, the neurons in my mind have put me to the point that I've realized that you are the most apt mate for me to be able to move forward. And we should do that until death do us part or until I find another mate that is more attractive than you with whom I can, I don't know. I just add all this and, and I just put that in context, friends, is that from that perspective, then really what he is saying is that freedom doesn't exist. But at the same time, the problem that he has is that it's a conversation on multiple levels. Something we introduced last week that just I have to just bring back in is that the issue is from the scientific, if it's purely placed on the physical, on what is empirically verifiable, on what we can determine, whether it be height or weight or speed, these different types of measures... There's a place for that, but it doesn't account for these things that do not fit within that confines. Imagination, love, belief. It, it, it's not that one conversation is right and one is wrong. It's that they intertwine together, and the humility must come when we allow that to happen. So Christian skeptics believe commands aren't liberating, but they are created to contain. James, in chapter 1, verse 25, wants to take a different perspective. The one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, to obey it, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it will be blessed in what they do. So it's this idea that religion is slavery is wrong. Really, religion is the next step in freedom. And through obedience, you are free. Again, it seems paradoxical, right? It seems very churchy. One of the things that's encouraged me so much, though, is that I, I listen to some, you know, like agnostic, non-believer leadership guru, gurus. And not only do they talk about, you know, different ways you need to live, but they also talk about um, how you should structure your life. And it was very interesting. I was listening to a podcast this week from a guy named Tim Ferriss, and he even had this piece of conversation. He goes, you know, everybody thinks that obedience and discipline really limit your freedom, but in essence, 
it releases it to further freedom. And I was just like, this dude is a preacher and doesn't even believe in Jesus. So understand this, is that you know, part of our belief is this idea that it actually frees us. It doesn't contain us. It doesn't limit who we are. That through the law we can find freedom. True, some people use this, and this is what James is speaking to, is some people use it to, to contain people. Some use, people use it to force improper authority upon others, but really it liberates. It frees us. One last concept to talk about here is this idea of journey. And I, I love this concept because it's generally how I frame my Christian walk with Christ. And I think it's scriptural as well. Because instead of it just being structural, I believe it's journey. Now here's what's really interesting about what Harari does as well. He allows for this. So even in his disdain for religion, he's okay with spirituality. One last quote of his, I want us to, this is a longer one, but, but you've guys been so good to stick with me, Just hang on with me. That the assertion that religion is a tool for preserving social order and for organizing large-scale cooperation, <laughs> I love that just preface, that's a lot of words, but just to understand is that what he is saying, as the evolutionists would say, is that religion's place was to keep people in line to get them to do what they want to do, right? So religion doing that may vex those, anybody who uses vex, I'm a fan of, for whom it represents first and foremost a spiritual path. So again, hearing Harari say this might tick us off because we really believe in our faith and we know what it's done for us. However, he writes, just as the gap between religion and science is narrower than we commonly think. Isn't that a great sentence here for an evolutionist to write that? The gap between religion and science is narrower than we think. And by the way, I'll tell you that I think there's blame on both sides of that. Okay, so the evolutionist is culpable because they think that we're insane that we think that something made all this. But then the evangelical has just been just as, as vicious within this, trying to prove like science is evil. So I love that he admits here, that gap, it's a smaller gap, it's narrower than we think. Uh, so though, the gap between religion and spirituality is much wider. So he says that the gap between science and religion is smaller than religion and spirituality. Goes on that religion is a deal whereas spirituality is a journey, a deal like a contract, something that we form. So religion is just us signing up for it and living out. Spirituality, however, is a, it's a journey. I just want to pause. I love that this evolutionist is sitting here trying to give credence to spirituality, even though he believes that, you know, there are these neurons within our minds that are just, you know, these, these things that are determining what we do that we're not, actually, we're not actually choosing them. Religion gives a complete description of the world and offers us a well-defined contract with predetermined goals. And this is then how he sees religion, that God exists, he told us to behave in certain ways. If you obey God, you'll be admitted to heaven. If you disobey him, you'll burn in hell. And I would offer you, friends, that this then is that great tension too of those who want to put religion within that. And unfortunately, there have been well-intended followers of Jesus who had no better way to explain what we do than that at the end. This is our group. We're the ones who are going to heaven. Come in and join our group. If you don't, Exit stage right. That's sometimes how we frame it. I think it's lacking. And I would also say that that's not really what exists. 
The cool thing within Christianity over the last few decades has been they've tried to frame, you know, that, that, that tension between relationship and religion, right? So relationship, well, this is what we're doing, but religion is this thing that holds us back. But then I go and read what James writes about this in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, a few things that you just have to see within this. Number one, is James about, it's about relationship and not religion? No. What he's showing us here is that religion can be co-opted negatively to become something that it ought not to be. That's what Jesus fought with the religious leaders of the day. The tension that said, you follow the law, and that's really the most important thing. So it's not even the problem with the law. What James says is we don't have the ability to see through that and to make it real. So understand that he's not saying that all then you have to do on your checklist of life is to take care of orphans and widows and then to not be polluted by the world. It's not like that's the summation of it. But what he's trying to say is, look, there should be a response, an action that comes out of this that shows that I'm not just obeying rules, but it, that it's a, it's a viable part of my life, that it seeps out from me, that it's robust. Friends, this is what we miss out on within this. And this happens from, again, an evangelical perspective where we have screwed up religion and from an evolutionist perspective to where they, they can't understand what we do because they only see it summarized as this. God, as we believe, exists. And therefore, we're trying to find our way back to him and in doing so, what we're, we ought to be doing is expressing that through positivity, not through limitations. If we are preaching a Jesus that makes somebody burden, then we're doing it wrong. And that's not then anti-scientific, it's anti-biblical. And that's the problem that we have, is that we're screwing this thing up. But it doesn't negate the idea that we should be able to believe in something greater than us. All this is about, you know, this whole tension is about knowledge, what, what we can ascertain. So then thinking about this week, I, I had to, let me, you know, this is church so I can do this, but, you know, this conversation goes many different ways. Actually, this is what's horrible. I know it's even running past, but I even have more I want to talk about with here. Just trying to pull this out, but the pursuit of knowledge is usually what science wants us to get behind. And as we people of faith, what should be something that we are passionate about doing. Just extracting a little piece of knowledge from the scripture about knowing. From Deuteronomy chapter 34, that was a left turn at Albuquerque. But I'm going back to even the Torah to just give this little phrase about the relationship between God and Moses. The writer says, since his time, no prophet has risen in Israel like no Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Knowledge. God had knowledge. The Hebrew word for that is yada. It's really yada. So, you know, the yada, yada, yada. Is this root to know? To be able to find knowledge. It occurs almost a thousand times in the Old Testament alone. And yada, I'm going to read this, denotes a sense of perception, intellectual apprehension. 
possession of facts and information that can be learned and transmitted. Practical skill in discriminating justice. See, and here, what this is, is that, that then God knew Moses. It's like he has this thorough scientific, if you will, understanding of who Moses was. And I say scientific to the point is that he knows, he's probably like Moses, you got to lay off like the fake bacon because your arteries are horrible, right? Like he knows everything about him. Yada. We see this in the New Testament in the writings of Paul. Now I'll grant you that it's not the same word yada here because it was a word that translated into the Koine Greek. But Paul writes that I want to know Jesus and know the power of his resurrection. That part of our belief in our faith, friends, is the pursuit of knowledge. And I would offer you that in the city, that's what people really are trying to look for. Faith usually has a lower status from them because it's not empirical. It doesn't, it's not justified in what they can see stretched out before them, right? Like it's this search of knowledge. But this is what's interesting. When God has yada, or excuse me, when the word yada has God as its subject though, it means something more robust. And this uh, Jewish scholar named Nahum Sarna writes this about that Deuteronomy text. So he writes, in a biblical conception, yada is not essentially or even primarily rooted in intellect or mental activity. Biblically, it, it, it goes even beyond that. Rather, it's more experiential and is embedded in the emotions so that it may encompass such qualities as contact, intimacy, concern, relatedness, and mutuality. This, I think, is the tension. Is that in our pursuit of knowledge and knowing that we view it as purely like an academic, a fact-finding, an experimental way. But even biblically, friends, it's more robust than that. And in your lives it is too, isn't it? When you learn something new, I don't know about you, I love to learn new things. It sucks the older you get because then you realize that your brain is hardwired into the old things, but I love learning new things. And not only do I love doing that, you know the, the thing I usually end up doing is then I go tell Kelly because I want her to hear about it. And then somehow, if it's a more complex concept, I'm like, how can I make that simple enough to teach Kaylin? Because I get so excited that I want other people to know what I've known, right? Tell me you're like that. Like, is that just me? Or do you play too cool? You're like, I learn things and I don't let other people know because I want them to know that I already knew that. Man, I want other people to know that because I'm like, and, and why? When Wikipedia can usually solve that itself, right? Like, I start a conversation, and, and you could just say, Wikipedia. Like, we could find that. But why do I want to do that? Because that knowledge to me becomes something that's far greater than just fact, friends. It's something that intertwines with my soul. And it, it speaks to those things. Contact, intimacy, concern, relatedness, mutuality. It just, it, 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 it's far beyond this empirical perspective, but speaks to something that's deeply ingrained in who I am as a human being. Friends, that's to know. That's yada. So I'd say this, just to, uh, talking about this whole, what, what we've been doing so far, and where I want to take us here. Why are we working through this? Because recognize that your mind is incredible. 
The human mind is a computer in itself and we usually limit it with episodes of Beavis and Butthead and we don't allow it to be released into something that's greater. But the outcome doesn't have to be limited to things that we perceive as scientific, just merely scientific, because that, friends, is part of who we are too, and it resonates within our soul. Our God is the God of mathematics, but our God is the God of poetry. It all intertwines together with him. So in this exploration into who he is, how he made us, and what we believe about him, just open yourself up to the possibility and see what it determines. It's not incongruent with the world. In fact, it's all wrapped up within it. It's still faith, but let's work on our belief. I think I'm done. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. I thank you for these people, and I I really pray, Father, that they are grappling with some of these same things in their lives as I do. Because, Father, we, we, we love our friends and our family and our colleagues who are far from you. And we want to be able to see them to move closer to you, Father. And we just ask for those opportunities. But as we do so, help us not to denigrate what they know or what they think and how they think. Father, help us to see the encompassing power of your knowledge what it means to us, both intellectually and spiritually. And that that can resonate far beyond just our mere use of it. We give all this over to your spirit and say, work within us. Help us to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We give him praise today in Christ's name. Amen.